All right, everybody, grab your Bibles and open them up to Romans chapter 4. Order of service is slightly different today. We will get to tithes and offerings here in a little bit. Uh, But right now, I want to invite you to take those Bibles and let's go to chapter 4 of Romans. Now, last week, we were in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. And there we saw Paul explain justification by faith. We get to chapter 4, Paul's now going to detail or illustrate justification by faith in the lives of Abraham and David. Chapter 4 could be kind of broken out into four major sections, and I'll just deal with the first section this morning. So if you're interested in where we're going in chapter 4, it's going to be like this. Uh, Verses 1 through 8 we'll see that justification is by faith, not by works. Then uh, verses 9 through 12, justification is by faith, not by rites or ceremony. And then verses 13 through 17, justification is by faith, not by the law. And then to wrap up the chapter from verse 18 through 25, we'll see that justification is by faith, and faith in God's promises. Most people, unfortunately, they think that God is going to ultimately accept them as long as they try to be good or to do good. For many, they believe that they can secure God's approval by their pursuit of good. So they'll try to be respectable, honorable, try to be upright citizens. Perhaps they'll occasionally help those that are less fortunate than them in their time of need. But the tragic reality is that this logic or this reasoning is flawed. We're not accepted by God on the basis of good. Justification or being declared righteous is by faith. And so we find ourselves having unpacked that last week. Now we need to get into the illustrations and the examples so that we can see this reality of what it meant and what it means for us today. And so look at beginning of verse number one. There it says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul illustrates his first example with the question. And the question is, what then shall we say? Now, this was a a question that he'll return to throughout this letter. So if you're interested, Paul's going to use this question uh, six times in his letter to the Romans. We see it in our text this morning. You'll see it again in chapter 6, verse number 1. Chapter 7, verse number 7. You'll see it in chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 14. And in verse number 30. And so I want you to look closely at at his question and look at verse number two when he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Notice verse two, Paul does not say that Abraham was justified 
by faith. There's a conditional clause there. It says, if, if Abraham were justified by faith. The language here indicates clearly that our justification is not based upon works. Not based upon the things that that we do on our own. And Paul doesn't hesitate to point out the foolishness of this kind of thinking. The idea that one can earn their salvation is based upon the false assumption that people can somehow make God owe them something on the basis on what they did for themselves. Think about that. If salvation were based on works, then, then, then the idea is that if I do enough, then God is obligated to do something for me. That, that God is now indebted. God now owes me something because of all that I've done. If God could be put in debt to any person, then he would cease to be God. In verse number 3, Paul says, for what does the scriptures say? Notice he doesn't ask, what does your favorite theologian have to say? What does your favorite pastor say? He doesn't say, what does your political party have to say about this? It's not, hey, what does culture have to say? How does culture speak into this? Doesn't say that. He doesn't say, what do your friends say? He doesn't ask, what does your mama say, your daddy say, your grandparents say? No, no. For Paul, the supreme authority was nothing less than the word of God. And so, so Paul reaches back to Old Testament history to show us that not only are we justified by faith, but we always have been justified by faith. And so he quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice that it says Abraham believed God. It's one thing to believe that God exists. It's another thing for us to believe what God says and to to trust in what God has declared and, and to put our confidence in his word and in his declaration. And that's what saving faith is. Saving faith is not just merely believing in a God, But it goes beyond that. It's trusting God for our redemption. Saving faith is an internal conviction that leads to an external action or behavior. So saving faith is something that you believe that then affects how you behave. And so that word believe in the Greek, we've gone through this before, but let me refresh your memory, right? That word believe is from a Greek word, pistero. And that word means to, to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. We must always remember that a person who really believes in something or someone will commit themselves to that which they profess to believe. If a person doesn't commit themselves, if that belief doesn't change who they are and what they're doing, then they do not truly believe. Belief affects behavior. Always has and always will. 
And so as we're reading through and unpacking some of the New Testament scriptures, and we see how it's, it's taught that justification is by faith, it's presented clearly in, in Paul's letter, then the question comes, well, what about the Old Testament? If that's how it's working now, how did it work then? How were people justified in Old Testament era? And, and the point that Paul is making is that people were justified in the Old Testament in the same exact way as they're justified in the New Testament. They were justified by faith. That is it. You see, the Old Testament saints believed in the future Redeemer who was to come. And so they looked forward, believing in the future, believing in the promise to come, looking and longing for the arrival of the Messiah. Their justification was by faith. Now in the the New Testament age, we're still justified by faith, but we're not looking so much forward to the arrival of the Savior as we are looking back to, to the declaration and the celebration of who Jesus was and what he has done and what he has accomplished. So actually we do. We look back and we look forward. We look back to Jesus and we look forward to his second coming. And so Abraham was justified, and we'll say that word a lot. you got to remember, justified means to be declared righteous. Abraham was declared righteous. He was justified by faith. Abraham believed God. And God took Abraham's belief, and he counted that. He credited it to Abraham as righteousness. That makes sense. Remember, A person who really believes commits themselves to that which they profess to believe. Belief affects behavior. And so if we can, let's take a few moments to see this reality played out in Abraham's life. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we'll start from there. And I'll show you some of the evidence that Abraham's internal conviction led to external action. When Abraham was first called by God, he was living in Ur of the Chaldea. And archaeologists have estimated that at the time of Abraham, the population of Ur would have been uh, approximately 300,000 people. This was an important commercial city. It's located along the Euphrates River. It's a little more than 100 miles northwest of the Persian Gulf, if that helps you today. The people of Ur were, were highly educated. Evidence also seems to suggest that by Abraham's time, the Chaldeans had developed their own system of writing. So they're highly educated, but they were also polytheistic. Polytheistic means that they worshiped uh, uh, multiple gods. And so Abram would have been reared among a polytheistic pagan culture, heavily populated. That's the land from which he comes. And, And so when God called Abraham, or Abram as he was known at the time of his calling, God gave no reason for selecting this one particular pagan from among the 300,000 in 
Ur or the millions that lived at the earth at that time. God gave no reason for his selection of Abram. God chose Abram and he did so on the basis of his divine will. And we must always remember that when it's the, the will of God, then it needs no justification. It needs no further explanation. It's God's choosing. Genesis chapter 12, look at the calling. Verse number 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then notice how he responds, verse 4. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old. 75 when he departed for Haran. So, so with no guarantee outside of God's spoken word to him, Abram left behind his business. He left behind his home. He left behind all that was familiar. He left behind his friends. He left behind the majority of his relatives. I mean, Abram exchanged what was known to him for the unknown. He exchanged the the personal security that he felt for unknown certainty. And how old was he? He was 75. 75, Let that sink in by by show of hands. If you're near, at, or over 75, come on, raise your hand. Imagine God telling you right now to leave all that you have known. How excited would you be? God calling you that he's going to start all over. He's going to do something special and unique in your life. 75. I love that. Which means to me, I love that so much because, please don't take offense to this. Hear me. Just because you're old doesn't mean you're done. You need to let that sink in. Just because you're old doesn't mean you're done. You might be retired from your career, but I promise you, you'll find no scriptural support to retire from serving God and serving one another. It ain't in there. There's no justification from retiring from your faith. It doesn't work that way. It's not there. I'm going to help you all out. You know when you're done serving God and serving one another? Yeah. When you're dead, you're done. Until then, God's called you to serve. Serve him and serve one another. And as far as I can tell, there might be a few of you that are asleep right now, but you're not dead, which means you're not done. 
Oh man, that's 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 call for the church to wake up. We 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 live with this faulty mindset and thinking that says, "Ah, oh, well, I've done my time. It's time for us to step aside. Let those younger kids let them do the ministry." No, no, we need your wisdom. We need your example. We need your the encouragement of your faithfulness. That's what the church needs. You're not done. Like. Stay in the fight. Finish the race. You know, in the race that you ever watch people as they run, there's two ways that people finish a race. You'll see them cross and run across the finish line in one of two ways. One, you'll see those that barely make it and they stumble to the end and they collapse when they're done, totally exhausted. They spent everything. Then you'll see others that come just finishing the race with more in their tank. And they will be honest, they look back, they can be like, you know, I could have given a little bit harder at this mile marker. I could have gone a little bit longer and faster if I just would have done more. I think about that. Like when, for me, I, the very first time I preach here, I said this. When, when I'm done and when God calls me home, I want to hit that finish line completely spent, totally exhausted, welcomed into the eternal rest before our Lord and Savior. You're not done. So get out of that thinking that you're retired from serving and find your place of ministry. I feel like we could just end it right now. But we're not. We're going to go. Look at Genesis 12. Uh, Go now. Continue. Verse number 5. Abram took Sarai, his wife, who was 65 years of age, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they sent out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, uh, to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Verse 7 The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. Notice how he responds. He says, so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Again, God gave him a message. God gave him a word. And Abram's response was to worship and to praise the Father. In in chapter 13, we'll skip past the negative stuff. We'll come back to it in a moment. But look at verse number 14. Says the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwest and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt with the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. God speaks, gives instructions, and he responds with worship and obedience. In Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse number 1, 
It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield for you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. In verse 6, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteous. So then Abram believed in the Lord, and God reckoned it to Abram as righteousness. When we get to Genesis chapter 17, it's now been 24 years since God gave him the promise. 24 years has passed. He's 99. His wife is 89. She's still barren. No children. Sarai has the tomb for a womb, unable to to give birth. Then notice what happens in in chapter 17. Verse 5 says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I'll make you the father of a multitude of nations. Go down to verse 9. It says, uh, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. We'll unpack that a little bit more next week. But look down at verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. But my covenant, verse number 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then notice his response in verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Immediately, Abraham follows God's instructions with obedience. It was not Abraham's works, but faith in God that God took and counted as righteousness. I want to show you what the writer of Hebrew has to say about faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse number 1 and 2, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen, 
For by it, the men of old gained approval. Then if you go down to verse number 8, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Abraham trusted God. He, He took God at his word. He believed the promise of God. Abraham was counted righteous because he believed God. The proof that Abraham believed was seen in what he did. His faith preceded his obedience. He believed God, and then he obeyed God. And now, make no mistake, Abraham's faith was not perfect. Like ours, his his faith at times was far from being perfect. There are many times where he just completely blows it. Genesis chapter 12 is an example of that. The first part, after being called and given the promise of God, and he leaves, and what happens? It says at that time, there's a great famine that happens in the land. So they're they're under famine. And so what does he do? Well, instead of turning to God and trusting in God, he takes matters into his own hands, and he packs up his family and his stuff, and he heads down to Egypt. When he does that, his disobedience puts him and others in a compromising situation, especially with the Pharaoh. They leave in Sarai. His wife, according to Scripture, was exceptionally beautiful. And out of fear, Abram tells his wife, Hey, uh, I need you to, to, to be my sister, not my bride. Because he was afraid. He was afraid because his wife was so beautiful that if he enters into the land, then the Pharaoh at that time will see his wife, want her for himself, knowing that she's married, then the only way that he could take her would be to eliminate Abram. And so him fearing for his own life, he's like, hey, why don't you just pose as my sister? Which is also very bad. I mean, he went from, go with me here, pimping out his wife to potentially pimping out his sister. To be clear, we would discourage both of those things. (laughs) Neither one of them are right. None of them are good. And in doing so, Abraham dishonored God. He betrayed his wife. You read through the account, he caused plagues to come upon Pharaoh's family. And if this wasn't enough, he not only does it one time, he does it again later. He does it twice. And, and then, I mean, then you have Genesis 16. How problematic is Genesis 16? I'm glad you asked. It's extremely problematic. Because by the time Genesis 16 arrives, it's been about 10 years since he's received the promise of God. 10 years about how he's going to be a blessing and going to have a great number of offspring. 10 years and his wife still hasn't given birth. So what do they do? Well, apparently God needs a little bit of help in making this plan come about. So his wife... Now says, hey, why don't you take my slave and have a child with her? To be clear, 
we would discourage that kind of thinking. Wives, it's never good to suggest to your husband to find a girlfriend. Always bad. 100% of the time, bad. Bad plan, bad strategy. So what happens? He takes Hagar, and they conceive a child together, Ishmael. And that's why you read through it, and Abraham's like, hey, this isn't working. You're saying that I'm supposed to have all these descendants. Surely, uh, can you just bless Ishmael and work that covenant through him? And God's like, no, no. And we're still, we still suffer the consequences of Abraham's disobedience in this act. The Arab nation, the uh, uh, Islam, they'll trace their history back to Ishmael. All this fighting in the Middle East, it's never going to be solved with a peace treaty. It just won't. It might buy peace at one time, but fundamentally what you have is two different thinkings and two different belief systems that are claiming the promise of God. And God has said that he will bless the one and not the other. Oh, it will always be in conflict until our Lord returns. Maranatha, may he come back and come quickly. Faith is never the basis for our justification. Faith is never the reason for our justification. No, faith is the channel by which God works his amazing grace in our lives. And I'll unpack that a little bit more in just a minute. But back to Romans, right? Romans chapter 4. I've got to get to verse number 8, so let's go. Romans chapter 4, back to verse number 3. It says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The word credited is a Greek term that means to, to put to one's account. It is a banking term. This word is used 11 times in this chapter alone. It's rendered different translate, or different, it's translated differently in different parts of the, the chapter. So some places you'll see it as reckoned or imputed, counted, or credited, it's all from that same Greek term. And so when a person works, they earn a salary. That salary is put towards their account. Abraham did not work for his salvation. He did not work for his justification. No, he believed in God's word. It was Jesus Christ who does the work for us. And he did it at Calvary. It was his righteousness that was put on Abraham's account. It is his righteousness that is credited to all of those who put their faith and trust in him. And so what was true in regard to Abraham's faith is true in regards to everyone's faith. That's why in verse number four, it says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
Notice that verse number five makes a startling statement. Verse five says, God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly because there are no godly people for him to justify. He put our sins on Christ's account so that he might put the righteousness of his son on our account. And so having used Abraham as an example on how we have always been justified by faith, he now turns to David as an additional example which I love these because these are like bookend examples. Abraham lives approximately 500 years before the law was given to Moses, and David lives approximately 500 years after the law was given to Moses. And so verse number 6 says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So here we're clearly told, that God credits righteousness apart from works. Man is justified by faith, not by what they do. And aren't you glad? Because none of us could do enough. None of us could, could walk in perfect obedience. And so God credits righteousness apart from works. And so like Abraham, David's faith was far from perfect. There are a number of times in David's life where David blows it, messes up. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse number 17, I believe it is. Deuteronomy 17, I believe it's in verse number 17. There we see how polygamy is completely, clearly prohibited. No, no multiple wives, that's not working. That's not the plan. That's not the will of God. And so we're told that in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And yet, according to the Bible, David had many wives. How many wives did he actually have? We really don't know. The scriptures have identified eight women. Five of those women are mentioned by name only once. Three of those women have a more predominant role in the story of David. Probably the most familiar one would be, yeah, Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with the account of David and Bathsheba, you should read the scriptures and go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and you'll read that there. David blows it big time. In a time where kings should have been leading their people in war, David neglected what he was supposed to do and was camped out at his home doing not good things. Napping, resting, instead of leading his people, goes out, beholds a beautiful woman, bathing, sees her, lusts after her, calls for her, brings her to him, and the two of them begin to ha have an affair. The affair leads to pregnancy. Pregnancy leads to a cover-up. Cover-up fails, and that cover-up ultimately leads to the murder and the assassination of Bathsheba's husband. In that one account, David has clearly violated commandments 6 through 10. Murder, adultery, stealing, lying, coveting. He's blown it. But look here. Notice what happens here in verse number 7. 
Here, Paul is reaching back to the Old Testament. He's actually quoting from Psalm chapter 32. This was a psalm of confession. This is after David's confession of his terrible sin with Bathsheba. In verse number 7, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Abraham was justified by faith alone. David was justified by faith alone. Every person before and every believer after, every believer before and every believer after, justified by faith and faith alone. Here's the deal. When some people hear that we are saved by God through faith, they begin to kind of worry. They begin to to have this thinking on, do I have enough faith? Or or they wonder, is my faith strong enough to save me? If that's you, that's your thinking, just be real gentle with you and tell you you're missing the point. You've missed it. God offers salvation as a gift of his grace, not because you've earned it by the strength of your faith or the amount of your faith, or the perfection of your faith. So the question becomes then, what role does faith play in salvation? The word faith means to trust, or to rely upon something or someone. So we've all demonstrated faith this morning. You demonstrated by taking your place in our worship center. You are exercising faith in the pews or in the chairs. And you probably didn't even think about it. I didn't see anybody come in, get on their hands or knees, and do a thorough, close inspection before they were going to sit down. No. You, you, you trust, you exercise faith, you believed that the pew or the chair was strong enough to bear the burden of your body mass, and so you sat down in your place. And when you sat down, it is the pew or it is the chair that is doing the work of holding you up, not your faith in the pew or the chair. Your faith neither adds to the strength of your chair nor assist in strengthening your seat. No. You just rest and rely upon your seat to do what it was designed to do. It's the same way with faith in Jesus. If you have faith in Jesus to save your soul, then you will not hesitate to place the entire weight of your salvation into his hands. So the question becomes, do you you entrust Jesus with the weight of your salvation? If you do, then it is him, not your faith in him, that has done all the work. Your faith neither adds to the work of Christ, nor does it assist in the work of Christ. No, your faith merely 
rests in and relies upon what Jesus has done. So faith, by definition, adds nothing to its object. Faith relies upon the strength of his object. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace through faith. Which means faith is merely the instrument by which salvation is received. Do you get that? It's, it's, it's the instrument. It's the means by which salvation gets applied. I see some blank looks. Let me, let me unpack it this way. It is like you are deathly sick. And, and what you need is some miraculous cure. And the good news for you is that cure has been developed in some medicine. And so we need to inject that medicine into your body so that you can recover and be healed, right? So, so how do we do that? We, we put that in a syringe, and we put that syringe into your arm, and we inject that into you. And great news, congratulations, you recover. You, you, you've been healed. How did you recover? How did you live? Well, you lived by the medicine that you received. So what led to your recovery? It was the medicine. It was the cure. But how was that medicine applied? Through that syringe. It's the same way with salvation. Without faith, salvation is impossible. And so faith is relying in and trusting that God has done all that is necessary through the work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls. And so we recognize that we on our own are worthless. We are no good, of no value. We've unpacked all of that. There's, there's none of us that do good. There's none of us that actually even seek to do good, according to scriptures. I mean, there's my encouragement to you. The gospel declares that every single one of God's creatures, all of his creation, all of humanity, we are born worthless and separated from the holiness and righteousness of God. And there is nothing that we can do, nor is there anything that we would ever desire to do on our own to make us right with God. We've got a massive problem. Unless something changes in our lives, then we will spend eternally Condemned and separated from God. That's awful. But the good news is, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan of redemption that was in place. God allowed his son to to leave the holiness and the glory of heaven to walk among the filth and the mire and the disgust of earth. To live the perfect righteousness, to display it. And to offer himself as that sacrifice. As we said last week, it required blood. Required blood. That's why David says his sins have been covered. What does that mean? Covered by the blood of Jesus. Covered. For you believe in him. Trust in Jesus. And how do you know that you truly believe? We don't like to talk about this a lot. But it's through your behavior. And what you do. The sad, the sad part is there are millions of people 
living today that have fooled themselves into thinking that they're a believer. And ultimately, they're going to die and be eternally separated from God. They've bought into a lie at somewhere down the line or somewhere in their past that if they just did this, then they'll be saved. You just join the church, or if you just get baptized as a child, if you just say a sinner's prayer, nope, that's not how it works. Belief. Believe. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. The question is, do you believe? If you believe, are you struggling with your behavior? If so, confess, repent, run after God, and know that we will serve him and declare his glory until he calls us to be home with him. And we're going to worship a little bit more. We're going to worship through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. So if our ushers will get ready for that. We're going to worship through a little bit of singing. And then at the end, I'll close this with a final benediction. As always, we are here at the front. We would love to pray with you, to pray for you, to pray over you, whatever it is. But now's the time to reflect upon the word of God and make choices that are appropriate in our hearts and in our lives. I'll lead us in our offertory prayer this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for salvation. And God, as we continue to worship you in the giving of our tithes and our offerings, we give today because we get to, Father, It is a joy, it is a privilege for us to support the ministries and missions of this church, for us to live in an awareness that not only does a small portion belong to you, in fact, everything belongs to you. So, Father, I pray that as we give this morning, we would do so with great cheerfulness of heart. As we reflect upon your word, that we would make appropriate choices today. In Christ's name I pray, amen.